Hi, I am Nicole J. Georges. I am a queer, feminist, vegan cartoonist, teacher, and advice columnist living in Portland, Oregon, with my half-blind chihuahua, Ponyo Georges. <coughs> Welcome to our podcast, Sagittarian Matters. Sagittarian Matters. Sagittarian Matters. What's the Dear Nicole and Michelle, I have just started a job where I have to be very tactful and ask people for money. Um, how do I learn tact and how do I learn to work with people who have money that I need to finance my social services organization but who are awful? Please let me know. Thank you. Okay. Wow. So this person wants to know, A, how to grow tact, and B, how to ask people for money for a charitable cause. With, with tact when they're horrible. You ran a nonprofit until very recently yes. called Radar. Radar Productions. It still exists. It's just I, I handed it off to some other folks to, to do. And um, we were, and, and they still are, a queer literary organization, a nonprofit. Um God, and I never mastered this. You know, it's really, really hard. I mean, part of my problem was I didn't even have the contacts. I, I had very limited contacts with people who had money. Yeah. I mean, there were, you know, um, foundations and stuff like that, and then you just meet with them, and it's very clear why you're there. They know they have money. They know they have to give it away. You know you're eligible. You kind of talk about why you're great. But it sounds like what this person is asking maybe how to sit down with pe individual donors. Yeah. That's really hard. You know what I think? I think that tact is overrated, and I think that instead of trying to cultivate tact, I think your time is better spent just cultivating your native passion for what you're fundraising for. Um, I think that, you know, I, I have a feeling that it's my instinct that people don't want to feel like they're being kind of worked. So I think that if you just come right out and be like, listen, this is what we're doing. It's so freaking rad. It's so necessary. This is, you know, who we serve. This is why they need us. This is how we excel better than anyone at what we're doing. And I know that you are hashtag blessed to enough to have <laughs> this, you know, considerable income at your disposal. And we really need it. We need people like you to jump on board. What do you say? I just think, yeah, you know, like to just be, I, I think that flattery and passion over tact. Yeah. That's my feeling. Yeah. But that's my, more my style. And it might be, too far out of your comfort zone. Well, also to quantifying do your excellence. Like, yes. You know, you're like, your excellence. you're like, okay, so I know that we do all this stuff. So here's the numbers. People like the numbers. Rich people love the numbers. Rich people love the numbers. When I'm watching Shark Tank, I love the numbers. When I think <laughs> about nonprofits, and I personally take for granted, like, I do so many readings uh -huh. and lessons and workshops and what have you every year and I just take for granted I'm like yeah that's just what I'm doing but when I sit down and I do the numbers and I'm, and I'm like I served 10,000 children over the past decade in wow. Portland public schools yeah but that's kind of thing I let fall to the wayside but when you hear it it's impressive yes. and you're like I have taken you know my blah 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 to 10,000 children in the Portland area yeah so I hope with your you know with your help I could service no, 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 no. I could warp the minds of... I could warp the minds of 13,000 children next year or 20,000 yeah. children next year. Yeah. So if your job is, you know, oh, I gave blankets to 1,500 homeless people last year without your help, with your help, think about how great you would feel if you knew that with your help, I gave 4,000 homeless people blankets. Totally. And then you get the numbers of, like, how many homeless people are there in, in your area, yeah. in your region that you're reaching out to. So, yeah, but, you know, yeah, I, I, I think that's great. I think that's the thing to do. But, you know, rich, rich people are so awful. There was a study done that the more money you have, the less compassionate you actually are. What? And I'm sure there's, there's of course, there's, you know, exceptions to everything. Yeah. I've, I know lots of uncompassionate poor people as well as compassionate rich people. But it's very interesting. There's there is a, some sort of truth to that thing that we all sort of, feel like, expect, that, which is rich people are just detached from suffering and don't really give a fig about other people's suffering. Bless you. Our producer just sneezed. <laughs> but wait, what's the, what's, cause like, I feel like if you're too poor, you feel scarcity. Yeah. So you're clinging to your resources more. And then there's a certain, there's a sweet spot where you're a rich person and you need to give away a certain amount of money yeah. for taxable reasons. But that doesn't mean you're compassionate. If you're giving, if you have a tax accountant that's saying, Hey, 
you need to do this. Yeah. That doesn't mean that that person is being like, oh my God, I'm really concerned about like the plight of like inner city school kids who don't have breakfast and aren't getting yeah. able to absorb their education. I want to like help them out. I have so much money. Yeah. They're just like, oh God, okay. Can you give this money to like the Audubon society? You know, it's like yeah. something like that. Yeah. I had, um, I was at a fundraiser. It wasn't for my organization. It was for a different literary organization, but it was one of their fundraisers. And so there were all these rich people kind of floating around who were being courted for their, for their cash. And, um, this drunk lady super took a shine to me mm. and wanted to know about my organization. So I told her and she was just like, I, my husband's going to give you money. Come with me, come with me. And she drives me over to her husband who's rich. He, um, he was one of the creators of one of the G, the big, one of the first big GMO tomatoes. Oh, so one of the my big God. GMO food items. Were you like, awesome, great. I didn't know that at the time. Like, I went and Googled him after I had a horrible interaction with him. He was drunk too, but unlike his like sort of hyperactive, like aggressively friendly drunk wife, he was just sort of like this sh- slimy schmoozy dude. And she, she's like, basically like tells me, to pitch her husband. And he's like, pitch me, you know? And I was like, okay, <laughs> like not expecting to do this. Give him the whole pitch about my organization. He's like, so if any of your writers made it, and I'm just like, immediately just want to punch him in the face. I'm yeah. just kind of like, I'm dealing with a group of writers who by your standards will maybe never make. And I just was like, what does that mean? I haven't made it. What do you mean make it? He's like, you know, are any of them uh, going to parties on Park Avenue? I'm like, wow, lifestyles of the rich and famous. Like, what, like, 12-year-old boy in 1980 is living inside your brain? And, yeah. like, that's any of them driving a year, flying a Learjet? Do they, they have drive. a Lamborghini? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and they're yeah. taking caviar for breakfast? Like, what are you talking about? Like, they're publishing great, critically acclaimed works. Like, so that, so yes, they've made it. But it's so gross. It, it just made me realize how much, like, rich people want to donate money to things that are already winning. Yeah. They have this, especially maybe in the Bay Area where, you know, I am, where there's all this, like, people want to invest their money in tech startups. They want ones that are going to be successful. And so it's really weird when you're used to getting all of your money from foundations that almost want to see how downtrodden you are. So over here, you're oh, just yeah. used to kind of performing this downtroddenness. Yeah. And now over here with this dude, you have to perform how you guys are all winners, but still need like thousands of, yeah. of their dollars. Like, yeah. Oh, I don't, I don't envy you. I'm really glad I'm out of the fundraising racket. It's oh just, it's so stressful. I could never do development. Oh, I was, I was very bad at it. I'm not good at that. I'm learning how to do grants and how to be like, I'm doing good things. Yeah. And here I can prove it. Give me money and I'll try to do something better or more. It's a great skill for any artist to have. Yeah. It really is because the money is out there for people. But it's just, um, I don't know. I, I, I think at this point I feel better. I can kind of represent myself in a grant. Yeah. You know, but kind of, there's just something so heartbreaking. Like if I don't get a grant myself, I'm like, oh, I didn't like my work, whatever. But if my organization wouldn't get it, it would just feel like such an injustice because I knew all the great work we were getting and it would be like oh this whole community just didn't get funded yeah you guys are such assholes yeah your organization did great work yeah it's i believe it's will continue to i always try to tell people how much the radar lab changed my life i mean oh. sisters could change my life obviously <laughs> but the radar lab was such a valuable thing and yeah. i am always i think i perhaps that so the radar lab was is was was a writer's retreat that um, that Radar, my organization, did for, I think, six years. Mm-hmm. We did it um, every August, um, two different sessions. Um, each session was 11 days long and had about nine writers in it, also visual artists. People would apply with the project they were working on, and they would the work would be judged um, anonymously by a panel of outside judges that we would select every year. It would be academics or artists or agents or publishers. And then also it would be judged by me and the folks who were working for the organization. And we tended to know who everyone was. We couldn't help it. So it was like half anonymous and half not anonymous. But it was in Mexico. Yes. It was in the most beautiful place in the world, Acumal, Mexico, right on the beach where turtles came and laid their eggs and hatched and crawled back out to sea. And it was just amazing. And if you uh, flew yourself there, yeah, you, had to fly you got yourself there. fed. 
yes. and housed mm-hmm. in a community of writers yeah. for 10 days in beautiful Aquamall, Mexico, where I, I never would have gone otherwise. I had a, yeah. I got a passport for Radar. You did? Oh, yes. I'm so proud. Look at I Radar. I got a passport your, for that. Your life. Now you said passport to go all over the place. <laughs> you go to Canada and back. You don't even know where I'll go. Every it was amazing. Way. I feel like it was one of the best things I've ever been a part of in my life. Um, but the the feedback and the discipline were so necessary. And cool people were about living it. in really close quarters. It's like if it was not like you know. Uh, we call, I was going to say McLean, but that's a psychiatric hospital. Um, uh, the, uh, McDowell? McDowell. <laughs> it's not McLean, like McDowell. Betty Ford. <laughs> oh, our producer just licked my face. Um, Come on. It wasn't, it's not like that where you get your own cabin and you have all this privacy. It's like everyone is all up in each other's business and everyone's writing together in a little room. And if you wanted to go off and work on your own, there's really limited space where that was possible and none of it was terribly comfortable but in spite of that everybody worked really well together yeah and so much great work came out of that yeah your book yeah came out of that Colleen and Dr. Laura came out of it yeah and um Sarah Jaffe's book Dryland didn't she work on that yeah she did and um Jill Soloway and Jill Soloway came she met that's how she met everybody that's how she met everybody that's how she met Ali Liebogott who's now writing on Transparent um Ali's book Cha-Ching came out of there my book Black Wave that's coming out and my mermaid book both came out of there um, Lucy Corrin's 100 Apocalypses, Maggie Nelson's The Argonauts, Thomas McBee's Man Alive, mm-hmm. Justin Chin's poetry book came out of there, as did C.A. Conrad's poetry book. Did Brontes' book come out of there? Yeah, Brontes' book, he, Brontes worked on his book there. Yeah, it's wild how many yeah. amazing pieces of, of writing. Uh, Danny Levesque's Hairdress on Fire. Um, yeah, lots of stuff. Yeah. Rhiannon Argo's book's came out of there um Ariel Schrag oh yeah Ariel Schrag what did Ariel work on Ariel was working on um she came and she was working on like a kid's book oh wait no she was working on Adam also yes it's kind of incredible yeah it's wild well so since then I told these girls I tried to get in cahoots with these girls that run a car a comics convention called Short Run in Seattle Uh uh-huh to do an all women's comics residency that'd be so cool inspired by that um I would do an all-queer one at some point, but mm-hmm. um, they did it, and I was like, you should do it at the Southwester, which is my favorite place. It is a bunch of vintage travel trailers on the coast, on the Washington oh, wow. coast. I can't personally write grants for this because it's in Washington, and I live in Oregon, and so I can't, it's hard. Yeah. But um, they live in Washington. They live in Seattle. So they set this up. Their thing is a nonprofit, and they invited 10 women to go down for a week this year, and myself and my friend Liz Prince, whose book Tomboy just came out, uh, went there. Oh, I saw that book in a bookstore recently. Yeah. We just went there for a couple days because tragedy among tragedies, my dog needed retinal replacement surgery. Like, Wait, what? This this our producer? The producer Ponyo, her retina is detached, and oh. so she needed uh, emergency eye surgery in Seattle that week, oh and God. it was very time sensitive, or else she'd be blind for the rest of her life. Oh my God! So I had to choose between love of female cartoonists and love of Ponyo and you couldn't you know. do both we we stopped by for one day as my tip of the hat to trying to do both and yeah. then went to Seattle and wept and gave them all my money and oh God. the dog's eye got it's sewn so back together having a producer they could be so expensive at any moment all of a sudden your producer cost you all this money I know I always actually put a price on my dog's head where I was <laughs> like Ponyo's worth two thousand dollars and then the eye surgery thing came up, and they were like, your three-year-old dog could be blind for the rest of her life, and it will be $4,000. And I was like, the price tag on Ponyo just went up. But I was like, but you think I'm going to tell this dog she has to be blind for the rest of her life because I'm being cheap? Oh, God, it's awful. You know? It just makes me never want to have pets just to think about having to make decisions like that. No, we just give them to take them to a fire station or something. I wish you could. Just take a pet to a fire station. I can't deal anymore. You can take them to Humane Society. Well, yeah, I guess that's true. I I returned a dog to the Humane Society once. You did? It's a terrible feeling. It's horrible. People, good they, people sometimes can't deal with the pet that they have adopted for various reasons. I don't know if I was a good person at the time, mm. but I definitely was an alcoholic person mm-hmm. and had no business having a dog. A dog's a big responsibility. That I just got on a whim that my boyfriend at the time who was working at the SPCA just brought home one day. Oh, no. And who I would like leave in my room while I went to the bar. And I'd come back and be like, but the dog ate everything. Oh, no. And yeah. my roommates who, who had never been consulted about this or like that fucking dog just barked all night long. Oh, yeah. 
I had to take a dog back once because she just kept biting my dog, and it was mm. it was no good. But it feels like you're the worst person in the world. They'll t- they'll um they'll take dogs that bite. It it might it just bit my dog had a bad attitude, Beja. So Beja would inspire any dog to bite oh. her, unfortunately. Hi, Nicole. A while ago, a few of us met in an intimate setting to talk about our creative projects. I presented my project, and then the next week, another participant posted on Facebook that they were doing the same thing and thanked me for the inspiration. I wrote to them saying it bothered me that they started doing the same thing I was, since we had so few degrees of social separation. I don't see a public post on Facebook as an excuse for conversation. I feel that they should have talked to me about it first. They replied that they had already dabbled in the project, so I said, okay then, never mind, because I felt like I was doing some weird ownership thing. We never really spoke again, and they never came back to the then-ongoing space with friends to discuss our work, and I feel like I have been watching them get well-known off my idea for the last year. I know they are not responsible for my response, which is to shut down and stop working on that project, but I'm just so bitter and mad about it. It takes a lot for me to show people my work, and after this, I put my guard way back up. Has the internet changed everybody's morals? Do I need to just not be so sensitive and move at the times? I can't shake how mad I am and it's getting in my way. Please help. And please tell me not to be so upset about this or get over it or something. Advice, please. Heal the world. Make it a better place for you and for me and the entire human race. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, is it say? There's a choice we're making. We're saving our own lives. Um, you want me to tell you not to be so upset about this or get over it or something? Don't be so upset about this. Get over it or something. If you have talent, this person's not going to take your talent away. If you had one good idea, you will have more good ideas. It's possible this person bit your idea because they thought it was a good idea. The highest form of flattery. It's possible this person was already working on it, like they said. And you guys just both happen to have the same great idea at the same time. Either way, your idea is still worth it. And you, if you have talent, uh, you should still share it with the world. I was talking about your problem with a friend. We couldn't imagine what this project could be, but I thought, you know, there's no scarcity. There's one musical about cats that come from another planet and it's called Cats. But would I like to see a different musical, theatrical performance about cats? You bet I would. I absolutely would. And even if I got the idea for that musical from seeing the Andrew Lloyd Webber classic Cats, it would still be a cool thing. Um, I just think you're gonna keep having good ideas and if this person is a fraud or isn't talented, they'll be exposed as such at some point. But I. I don't think it matters that they're getting attention for your thing. What do you want? You want, Are you doing art for attention? You don't need to do art for attention. You need to do art for yourself. So if this project needs to happen, just make it happen. And so what fucking what they do theirs. If you knew how many people have come into... I didn't... I, I want to say, I want to clarify. I didn't make up calendars necessarily. But if you could see how many people I've come into contact with that have been like, you do a calendar every year? And who then have immediately started doing a calendar that's remarkably similar. And I've even had somebody cut and paste my Etsy description of my calendar and then fill in the the specifics about their own. Um, And I've had people order my calendar as customers. And then I saw those same customers made their own animal calendar the next year with images that were almost exactly like mine. Um, That kind of thing has happened to me over and over and over again. And there's... Plenty of people you could ask my friends about who they have forwarded me their stuff and said, hey, this person's biting your style. This person's biting your idea. But you know what? Like, there's no scarcity. There's just not. Um, I'm sorry this person took your idea. I'm sorry you don't feel safe telling other people your ideas. But if it's a good idea, you're eventually going to put it in public. And it's going to be public domain. And it has nothing to do if it's the internet or not. It's fine. People are going to bite your thing because they're inspired by you. That's great. Um, If your thing is quality, it will stand on its own and it will have its own voice and it will be its own thing. And there's no scarcity. You might be gay. You might be a woman. 
You might be a person of color. You might be othered in some way. And so from the examples you've seen, you feel like there's only room for a few of those or for one of those, but that's not true. Um, Do you know how many straight white people are out there telling stories? A lot. There's a lot of straight white able-bodied people telling stories about romance. And none of them feel scared to tell their stories about romance. The same goes for queer people or people of color or people with different abilities or people with different genders. Uh, There's room for a lot of our stories. There's room for a diversity of perspectives and you can make a story, even though you're an othered person, it's okay if two of us make the same story because we're gonna be different even if it seems like we're doing the same thing. Does that make sense? Uh, I could write a story about dating and I'm a gay person with glasses. A different gay person with glasses who looks just like me could also tell a story about dating and it will be different because we're different human beings. So keep making your art, get over it. They're getting attention, try not to be bitter, just ignore them, block them on Facebook. You told them how you felt, that's the greatest thing you can do. If you feel like they're infringing on something that could be a trademark thing, that's different. And you could write to them and say, hey, this is coming very close to infringing upon my copyrighted work or my trademark, or this is almost infringement. Um, You could tell them that, but other than that, you have to drop it. And there's room for all of us to have fans. You know what? Larry the Cable Guy has fans. I have fans. Cirque du Soleil has fans. There's plenty of different fans in the world for all kinds of things. And that's it. And you'll get more good ideas. And this person will get different ideas. And just don't tell them your ideas anymore. The end. Good luck to you. Get off your bitter boat. And jump onto my boat of abundance. No scarcity. No scarcity. Goodbye. Sarah Gertrude Shapiro is the co-creator of a show called Unreal, which is on Lifetime. Unreal is a scripted drama about the dirty underbelly of a romantic reality show similar to The Bachelor. It has dark, complicated female characters, and it has been compared to Breaking Bad. I love it. I met Sarah in Portland, where she fled after working on The Bachelor in her early 20s. We taught a class together called Homo Aerobics, and then she left me to make her short film Sequin Rays in Los Angeles, which then she developed into this incredible TV show. In this interview, we talk about the hard parts of being a career artist. This was on the heels of people saying to Sarah that it must be like a fairy tale getting to do a show and insinuating that it fell into her lap. I bring it up because everything she has now is the result of 20 years of training and hard work, and it's rewarding, but it's very hard. It does not have much in common with a fairy tale, and I'm not sure if people go up to male directors and show creators telling them that their life seems like a fairy tale. Anyway, also in this interview, I accidentally called Charles Schultz Charles Burns, and we know the difference. So please enjoy my talk with Sarah Gertrude Shapiro. And watch Unreal Season 2 on Lifetime coming soon. And Sarah Shapiro. Sarah Gertrude Shapiro. Sarah Gertrude Shapiro. Do you know why we use my middle name? Why? Because the other Sarah Shapiro writes books about being a good Jewish mother and wife. (laughs) It's for Google. I like uh, I like the idea of somebody googling you and finding that and be like, well, she writes this show about these dark characters. And they're feminists, but actually, she just wants us to all go home and make hala. Hala. Sarah, do you have... Well, I would need to say that I know you because I sat next to you at a party where you told me an incredible story about bringing a horse back to life <laughs> and being in pre-Olympic trials with the horse. Right. As if it were sea biscuit. Yeah, it was a little bit like sea biscuit, but it was like a really stressful, sad, complicated, realistic version of sea biscuit, which I guess sea biscuit was kind of complicated. But the other thing is, we also taught aerobics together. Yeah, we did. Which I think is a pretty valuable experience. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was really, um, I also think it's noteworthy that I gave up all the time. That my role in the aerobics class was to be the one who made people feel okay about giving up. Because I totally believe in giving up. <laughs> but I, I only believe in giving up on physical pursuits. As, as you and I were talking about before we started recording, I'm obsessively horrible to myself about pushing myself to the brink of death for creative pursuits. But physically, I just give up. 
Do you have uh, advice for young people involved in creative pursuits, specifically art or film? Marry young, marry rich. <laughs> That's my new advice. That's the new advice I've just come to at this stage in my life. How old are you now? Um, I'm 37 years old. How long have you been a filmmaker? Um, for 20 years, since I was 16, so 21 years. So this show just fell in your lap. Yeah, so it just, it just sort of happened. I got really lucky. I got super lucky. You're living a fairy tale. It's a fairy tale. It's a dream come true for me. <laughs> I gave up everything in my whole life. My health is pretty fucked up, and um, my mental health is, you know, questionable sometimes. <laughs> no, it's actually fine. I'm fine. I'm fine, you guys. <laughs> I'm, hey, executives at networks that want to hire me, I'm totally stable. Sarah has a show called Unreal. <laughs> it's on Lifetime. It just that, it doesn't suck. It's not shitty Lifetime. It's not. It's a new direction. <laughs> Tell them. It is a new one. No, but it's not a joke. It's not, it's not a joke. It's actually a real thing. It's changing it, the network. It really is a new thing that they're changing the network. But I, I guess I take for granted that anyone listening to this would already know that Unreal was a great show. Oh. And that it is not a Lifetime original movie about okay. somebody hiding vomit in their closet. <laughs> okay. Which it could do, and I would not mind that. That's a different place, though. <clears throat> um, we were talking about art and how it's such a charmed life <laughs> so to easy. be a Lifetime artist. It's super easy. And <laughs> we're thinking about how it's less of a calling and more of an affliction. Yeah, it feels like a curse. I feel like you and I were saying that we both have had experiences where we've seen people around us like waitresses <laughs> or <laughs> bus drivers or hairdressers, fishermen, fishmongers, cheesemongers, um, just having really um, fulfilling, successful, balanced lives and um, actually sort of cried with envy at people that are satisfied with those things and don't feel like... Um, satanic dogs are biting their ass making them <laughs> climb a mountain which is how I feel all the time I was getting an astrological reading from a couple uh-huh. and I they know a lot of artists but I think I was the first cartoonist they ever talked to and uh-huh. I just was talking about how it was like torture it's hell and how I needed to be isolated to do the writing part and I hated that part because I had to be precious about it mm-hmm. and it just, and even once the writing's done, it takes forever. It takes six times longer than a book, and I have yeah. to draw every page. And they were like, Have you ever thought about just choosing a different um, artistic way of being, like a different craft? Yeah. And I was like, What? I was like, Well, I love it. I was like, It's hard. I'm just saying it's hard. I, I have to do it. It's a compulsion. I'm not going to stop being a cartoonist. That's not a real option. Yeah. For me, not because it's so incredibly lucrative. No. Which, I mean, yeah, look at. I don't know what. Look at Charlie Brown. It's very lucrative. Yeah. But um, I guess he's a bad example because Charles Burns did have a dollar. Yeah. I feel like maybe one of your chickens will become a main character in a Disney movie and then it'll all be good. That would be nice. Uh, but it's... Anyway, but it's a, it's an affliction. I can't actually stop. It's like being a vampire. I'm just in it for life. and I'm complaining because I'm just telling you the real part of it. Yeah. I mean, I think um, I've really wanted to give up at times. I've definitely thought about just dropping out and not participating in the activity of writing or trying to make films and um I can only do it for a couple weeks and then I start freaking out like I just can't calm down but I do feel like now that I've actually made the thing I really wanted to make I almost feel like I can chill out a little bit but then I can't actually so yeah it just doesn't it feels non-consensual it really feels like a curse (laughs) how long have you had the idea to have a television show based on your life working in reality TV for about 12 years <laughs> so it's just fell in your lap yeah, it fell in my lap I got really lucky <laughs> <laughs> what we should say what I should say and you can jump in is that what you've said a million times is that Sarah used to, she worked on The Bachelor she got into a contract when she was young yeah I didn't actually agree to work on The Bachelor working on another show yeah and then and then they were like oh nay nay you cannot leave yeah. For your contract, you're going to work on any of our shows. Yeah, so you forever. You're going to work on The Bachelor, and you're doing such a good job that you have to do it for the rest of your life contractually. Yeah, and I said no, and they said check your contract. And I was young, and I didn't have a lawyer. So then she said, I'm going to kill myself. If I Well, that was after three years and nine seasons of making The Bachelor at a very aggressive pace. Did you have a favorite part of working for The Bachelor? A favorite part? 
diamonds. I like trying on all the diamonds. Um, Were they real? Yeah, I would go to Harry Winston and pick them up and fly them to dates and stuff. And I would, like, go in, like, my shitty, baggy, old navy jeans and, like, my stained <laughs> jacket and go into Harry Winston. They'd be like, hey, Sarah. <laughs> and uh, give me, like, millions of dollars worth of diamonds. No, and the horses, too. I think the the fun part of The Bachelor, and I should say this, I feel the need to caveat that some people really like working on that show. Um, but was that we had sort of could call anywhere and say, like, hey, uh, Puerto Rico. Like, we'd like to come film there. Can you fly me out to scout? And so... They would just send me a ticket in the mail and wine and dine me when I got there. So, um... That's nice. Yeah, I could travel anywhere in the world just by calling and saying we were considering it. So that, I... That mostly actually sucked, and that was a good lesson about, like... It's not the thing, really. It's, like, going on a tropical romantic vacation with a coworker that you hate <laughs> is actually just rocking a nightmare. Um, but I had one tropical vacation with my favorite co-worker my best friend and we still call it our honeymoon and it was really fun where was it it was that one was in puerto rico we flew around in a private plane we ate steak and lobster we got massages uh we went in a bioluminescent bay oh it was really magical super magical you're one of the people that tried to talk me out of being on reality tv yeah when i was more aggressively than yeah. i am now applying for the amazing race yeah but everything you said to me sounded great Oh, that's funny. <laughs> we have another friend who got pretty far in the audition process for The Amazing Race, who I can't name. Um, and she was like, it was hell. We were stuck in a hotel. All we could do was work out and watch The Amazing you Race. loved it. Oh, my God, you loved it. And I was like, that's like my dream life. Yeah. Well, I had never really seen The Amazing Race, so I guess I was kind of just reactively ill-advising you, maybe. Well, and what the, don't worry didn't dispel my dreams. It felt, it felt like a, a, a bucket of cold water of reality. And I was like, that feels great. You love it. Yeah. I'll do, I'll do what it takes. Yeah. I'm not here to make friends. I don't know if you heard that before. Yeah. Um, so you worked on the bachelor. I did. And then you had a pretty extreme mental re mental reaction to working on the bachelor. I did. As a feminist woman in the world. Yeah, but yeah, and also just like living at work and doing nothing but work and yeah, and doing something that I felt like was Satan's own labor. So then you got out of your contract by any means necessary. Yes. And you moved to Portland. Yes. Where we got to meet and fall in love. That's right. So our honeymoon began. Our honeymoon began. Um, so then you moved to Portland where we met and we fell in love. And now you're here to sell your house. Yeah, I'm here to sell my house and to give a talk at at PNCA for some people, for Wyden Kennedy people. What was the thesis of your talk? The thesis of my talk. Thesis and the thesis of my talk. The thesis of my talk was how to make it in Hollywood as a feminist woman. Um, but uh, yeah, I just gave this talk as a TED talk, and now they're having a conference up here about um, women in creative fields. But I think by that they mean advertising, and it's about the percentage of women, blah blah. But um, I was not super inclined to do it because I'm so busy in this way that I can barely take care of my own life, and I didn't really want to carve out time to do it, but I actually feel like it's pretty important because when I worked there, I was really frustrated by the gender stuff, and I am excited and happy that they are talking about it. So I came and basically gave the TED Talk up here. How did it go? It was fine. I think it was fine. I was there. Yeah, you were there. I was posing as your assistant. Yeah, what did you think of it? I thought it was great. Oh, thanks. I thought every... There's a part of your TED Talk where you talk about bringing a straight white guy to a meeting... Right. ...to pretend to be your assistant. Right. And as part of that, he was not to make eye contact with anyone. And right. And he needed to, like, check your schedule and whisper to you uh -huh. what your schedule was. Uh -huh. And the room went so wild for that, and everybody was laughing super hard. And... I thought, A, of course that's really funny, but B, if you were talking about a woman being that way, nobody would be laughing because they'd be like, well, yeah. Well, duh, that's what she does. Well, duh, that's what she does. And so it was this kind of crazy moment of all these people like, I can't believe you did that. That's great. But also the fact that it was laugh worthy. Yeah. Is, was very powerful for me to watch. Yeah. From a bunch of corporate um, ladies. But truly, I am like living obsessed with gender and work and especially male swagger at work. So this is a story of how I accidentally experimented with this idea. This <laughs> is something that happened. Okay, so as I was gearing up to make my short film, I realized that I needed a lawyer. 
and not like my uncle Al looking at my apartment lease, right? I need a, like a full on Hollywood lawyer. And I'm not sure if you guys know this, I feel like this crowd might, but it's to get a real lawyer in Hollywood as a no one is a big deal. It's kind of like getting an agent. Um, so I lied my way into a meeting, okay? I vastly exaggerated my relationship with an important producer and a temp was working in the front desk that day. And I had this moment of just sort of like, I'm just gonna do it, I'm just gonna try it. And I found myself with this meeting that I had like no business having. And I panicked and I almost canceled, but something wouldn't let me do it. So I thought through, I'm like, what am I gonna do? What am I gonna wear? What am I gonna say? What the fuck did I do? I'm like, should I borrow a Birkin bag? Or like rent a limo? Like, I'm like, I don't know what, I was like, I was like, what do I, I need like Chanel flats, right? Or I was like, I need to be like really rich or something. And then I thought about it more and I thought about what is the most extravagant accessory any woman can have, right? That no one does. A straight, white, educated male in his prime with nothing better to do than be my assistant. <laughs> so I called my friend Brendan from the band Main Streak. <laughs> and I said, can I borrow your male privilege for a day? He, being like the full-on career ally, right? Lifelong ally. It's like, of course. So then I had to figure out what we we're gonna do. I didn't even know what the fuck that meant. So I was like, um, you know, so I thought through, during my years in reality TV and advertising, I had observed that men and women tend to behave very differently in meetings. Sheryl Sandberg has been writing this amazing op-ed series in the New York Times about this. But in my experience, creative men, these genius guys, tend to sit pretty far back in their chairs, usually spread their legs, sometimes put their hands behind their heads. And in really extreme cases that I have like definitely been a part of, put their feet on the table, right? The really powerful ones, like crazy powerful creative genius, will wear sweatpants that show their butt crack and flip-flops, okay? Women, on the other hand, tend to bring notebooks and laptops, take copious notes, stay pretty quiet, and volunteer to do the crap work. I'm serious, this is like, you should read the Sheryl Sandberg thing. Um, volunteer to make all the phone calls, stay late, do the extra work. And in general, they are the multitasking helper people that enable these creative geniuses to bring their vision to life. And what's really hard and sad when you become acculturated that way, as I did when I was working in advertising, you sometimes wear your exhaustion as a badge of honor. You compete with each other for who is working harder and who stayed later, which is so fucked up. And the guys take the lion's share of the credit. So what I decided Brendan and I were gonna do was flip that on its head, okay? The day of the meeting, we met at a restaurant down the street. I wore the fucking craziest outfit. I had my hair piled on my head, bright red lipstick, and a handbag, like giant handbag for no reason. I think I like stuffed sweaters in it. There wasn't even really stuff to put in it. And then I told Brendan to get me drunk. Because I wanted to go to the meeting drunk. Because I was gonna be the disheveled, crazy genius that had to be handled. And Brendan was gonna be my subservient, note-taking helper. Okay. I also told him that they were going to try and deal with him. They were going to try and make eye contact with him. He was to refuse all eye contact. <laughs> he was to speak when spoken to and answer logistical questions only. Okay. <laughs> this guy is like such a sport. Wait, I think there's a picture. This is us at the restaurant. This is us at the restaurant. I'm covering my lipstick. It's too bad. I have a lot of lipstick on. We're getting ready. We're getting ready. So the time for the meeting comes and we walk into the office. Brendan, who's here and six foot two, walks in carrying my bag, binders, business cards, pens, eyes lowered, right? Behind me. I swagger in drunk without a wallet. I wasn't carrying anything. Baller! They show us into the conference room. They show us into the conference room. We're seated on one side of the table. 
They make us wait, of course. Then Big Attorney and his associate walk in. They sit on the other side of the table. Big Attorney sits down, spreads his legs, okay? Puts his hands behind his head and says, so, tell me about yourself. I just like said a couple drunk things about like film, a filmmaker from Portland and whatever. And he goes, what the, f-? he's like, how did you get in here? <laughs> and I just deadpan, I made an appointment. He was like, what the fuck? So exactly as expected, they turned their gaze to Brendan. What, for an answer, what is going on? Brendan would not look at them. He was, he was writing notes about nothing. Nobody was talking. Nobody was even talking. He was writing notes. They, it finally got so uncomfortable, they were forced their, to shift their gaze back to me and actually deal with me. We talked a little bit more about the project. I wasn't, I was drunk, but you know, I could, I could talk about it. And um, I could see their interest growing, like, who the fuck is this girl? Like, just staring at me, looking at Brendan, who wouldn't look at them. Like, she's some, she's just someone. Who, who, how do we not know about her? Like, who is this, right? Finally, the big attorney totally testing me goes, we need a $5,000 retainer. I didn't skip a beat, no problem. I was lying through my lipstick stains. I didn't have a dime to my name. I didn't know where I was going to find the money, right? No problem. Then he goes, how much longer are you in town? I go, I don't know. Trainer Brennan, how much longer am I in town? <laughs> Brennan looked up to me and goes, you're here till Tuesday. <laughs> and I turned back to them and go, I'll leave Tuesday. And that's how I got a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, I think I also, I don't, I think there was also like a moment of laughter when I was talking about how there's, has anyone met like a dude, creative guy who's like an asshole and late to meetings and a drunk and everyone was like screaming and hooting because they all like, because <laughs> like, and I'm like, well, I want to meet like an asshole, drunk, creative lady who's late to all of her meetings and is a fucking baller. <laughs> Do you have legit advice for women that are working in creative fields, specifically Hollywood? Hollywood! Y'all Dude, I don't know. Besides getting married, if, if marriage is off the table for Okay, you. well, obviously I should caveat the fact that I said marry young, marry rich, <laughs> with the fact that is really a tired person saying that. That was a person who has been pretty beat up in the world, just being like, wow, if you get... I think what the, what is underneath that advice, though, that is real advice, is that if, this, if you don't have to do this, if you're not, like, obsessed and being driven by hell demons to do this work there really are better ways to live and more fulfilling relaxing enjoyable human experiences on the planet than being an artist or a writer but if you really feel compelled to do it I think my number one piece of advice is pretty tough love which is that nobody is going to fucking help you at all and everything has to come from inside yourself and that you have to be willing to give up everything for the dream Nicole and I were just talking about how we both share the experience of um, being holed up in super shitty little Portland studios, uh, working by ourselves on weekends where friends are like at cabins in the mountains or having brunch or birthday parties or whatever. And just missing, for me, I'm speaking for myself now, just missing out on a lot of life. Like, really just missing it because I'm alone, locked in a rainy, shitty fucking closet side studio, writing and rewriting my short film. What is the best part about? Your Hollywood experience. That's a good... Um, I think, like, your show. there's a lot... There actually... Because I sound so cranky right now, but there actually are a lot of really good parts. But I think the best part is my relationship with my actors and um, collaborators. And it's crazy, insanely, triumphantly satisfying to have made something that we're proud of. Yeah. It's, like, ridiculously, insanely crazy satisfying. So, it's, like, at the top of the mountain, at the top of the hell mountain, there's some really good stuff. But you're just really beat up when you get there, I think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, what about for you? What's the best part of having having published your book and people love it? Going around? It's really nice to meet people who who seem reasonable, who tell me that they like my work or that it's affected them or it's a bit important to them. Yeah. Or um, it's really nice being able to now get flown to colleges to give talks yeah. and to meet like cool professors yeah, yeah. who are trying to do cool things and yeah. who are valuing my contribution to the literary community. Yeah. Whereas, you know, comics has been so, um, 
I don't know, it's been in a little box of like, this is serious, we can't tell, is this literature, and maybe not. Yeah. To have, you know, writing professors be like, this is great, or, you know, getting to meet people and getting more opportunities. Yeah. Also, even though the process of making a comic isn't fun. It's not fun. It's, it's that's, I think that's another part of my advice, that writing is really not fun, like, most of the time. I think Sarah Jaffe said this. I saw her say this somewhere, that it's just a reminder that this is, like, really fucking hard, like, most of the time, and it's, and you really have to be willing to put in terrible amounts of work. I mean, just, like, ungodly, insanely painful amounts of work. But I, also for me, the other kind of amazing part, I think, is feeling understood. Um, yeah. And I actually feel like that's kind of why I got into this stuff in the first place. Um, I, I mean, I think that most people and a lot of creative people feel like nobody gets them and that can be a really lonely feeling and I think that trying to express your life experience just through words and conversation can feel like you know like banging on a pot when you're trying to make music or something like it just feels like it's not enough and I've always felt like filmmaking is the most incredible way to convey a subjective experience because you can really build a point of view and you have like pictures and sound and music and all of these ways to convey what somebody is going through. And, um, I think it's, for me, it's really kind of like such an elevated art form. And I feel like there were a couple of reviews that we got of the show that while it feels like good, like on an accolades level or whatever to be like, wow, the New Yorker reviewed us, which is like an amazing thing in and of itself. It was what she said about the show. The person who reviewed it in the New Yorker was just so insanely spot on to all of the deepest things that I was trying to accomplish that I've never said out loud. And it was just like, it just feels nuts to be understood. Like it feels like you're finally in a relationship where somebody gets you or something like the world is understanding what you're doing. It's so nice. That is a crazy feeling. It's such a relief. It's so, yeah. And that, that almost makes it worth it. Like being understood by smart people too. Like people you respect and you're like, Oh my God, you got this thing that I was. Yeah. Like got on like a really deep level. And I feel like that's such a reward for doing your job well too, because all of those little, I'm going to turn the AC back on, all those little moments and ideas and story points and things that probably both of us fought for in our projects, um, that end up mattering to people is super incredible. I feel more connected. I feel like I feel more connected to the universe at large than I've ever felt, but I also feel super lonely. It's a weird thing. Oh yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. It's like this. It was like, I, I did a thing last night where I did a perform. I was thinking about how lonely it is to be a performer. Like I, sorry about that. It hurts. Hurts my rental car. Um, where I, you know, you, you go to do a performance. You're by yourself getting ready. You're by yourself driving there. Yeah. You're in the backstage, be like, eh, and then you go yeah. up and do it, and you're by yourself, and then everyone likes it, and everybody like wants to talk to you for one second. Yeah. Or whatever, and then at the end of the night, you're going home alone. And you're like, okay, and it's like this weird, exciting but almost alienating thing. Yeah. Of, like putting yourself out there. Yeah. And then you become both more relatable or people get you, but then also they feel intimidated or a little bit, you're a different breed. You've explained yeah. yourself as a different kind of person. Yeah. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. I have been finding a lot of the press stuff and the public appearances and stuff really important and for the show, like for the life of the show and kind of electrifying, but also really exhausting and lonely too. So, but I mean, it's like, and it sounds like such a little bitch to complain about it. It sounds like such a whiny little piece of shit brat to be like, I had it press, but like, I, I actually talked to another really successful, super famous writer the other night, but I actually was, I was hanging out with somebody who, um, Jonathan Franzen. No, I was hanging out with Shonda Rhimes. He's like the creator of Grey's mm-hmm. Anatomy and Scandal and stuff. And um, she, um, but she and I had just like a crazy candid conversation about the strangeness um, of writers becoming sort of um, more known, I guess, in television because writers inherently are pretty private people. Mm-hmm. Like we're kind of all the kids that really wanted to go home from school and like lock ourselves in our room and draw or like write or be alone. And so it's interesting, and I was saying, like, and I think she agreed, too, that it, that it's sort of tender and wonderful that people care about writers, because it's, um, it's wonderful. Like, it's, it's you know, we're, I think it's a really cool thing that the public is interested in us um, 
but it's not a great inherent match for our personalities to be the spokespeople of shows. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's just, a, it's, a, and when I say like, you know, for me, hair and makeup sh- people showing up at my house at like four in the morning to get me ready for something is one of the most violating experiences I can have in my life. Like I'm incredibly private. I live in a super tiny shitty house, which is another thing we were just talking about. Like my first show, like I did not make money. I do not have money. Um, I was embarrassed to have them there. I don't like being looked at that way. I actually don't like being photographed at all. Um, but all of those things end up being really important and necessary for the show. And I'm so glad that I did them, but they're challenging for me. They're really challenging for me. They're not like who I am. Yeah. Naturally. But on the other hand, with your art, you seem like you're confident. I am. And and like you're confident enough to put it out there. Do you feel like that was something that you just had from a young age? Or do you feel like you grew that through something? It's a good question. I feel like I owe a lot to my parents because they always were like, you're swell, you're smart, you're everything. And not hardly anybody gets that. And I really got that. And I got a lot of support for being a creative person. But then I think that the world... um, the world really potentially could have beat it out of me because I ended up in a lot of really sexist, um, work environments where I was sort of told to shut up and sit down and help people help other people like guys with their work. And, um, I think I just have always had like a crazy tenacity. Like I just won't let go. And if I decide I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it like no matter who gets hurt or if I get hurt or whatever, it's just going to get done. Mm -hmm. So like, yeah, that driven thing, I guess. Yeah. So I'd say the confidence is a combination. I think of just being instilled at a really young age that what I had to say was important. And then also like a real passion for it and a drive and feeling like I'll die if I don't get it done. I asked Michelle T this and she gave me a surprising answer, but yeah. Um, like if somebody wrote, said, here's a blank check for however much money you want. Uh, but if you, as soon as you sign it, you can never write another word. Like you can't tell stories anymore. Yeah. Would you do it? No, I would really want to. I'd want to so bad. (laughs) Oh my God. Maybe in like a year I would say, (laughs) I would say, I would say, oh my God, like maybe in a year I would say yes. But like right now, no. I always say, I feel like that's how you know that you're an artist or a writer. It's not like cause someone's published you or cause you're on TV. It's just because that's just who you are. And like, if you couldn't do it, I mean, I just imagine my life with a hundred million dollars and I imagine like swimming around in Hawaii with my own pet dolphin and being really sad because <laughs> like you couldn't like you would have all these feelings inside of you and you because I would just have like no community and no purpose and like nothing that I cared about or was doing I mean I think it I just have never I've never responded to a life of leisure on that level I mean I feel like my goal right now is to be fairly compensated for the work I'm doing so that I can live in a way that can take care of my body while I do the work and that's really my goal I think that's a great goal yeah um Sarah Gertrude Shapiro. Yeah. Not to be confused with Sarah Shapiro. Not Sarah Shapiro, a good Jewish wife, woman, whatever her book is called. Bad Jewish wife, woman. Yeah. Do you have any last words of things that you want to tell people who might be listening to Sagittarian Matters? Mary Rich, Mary Young. (laughs) Mary Rich, Mary Young. If only we could go back in time. Uh, I'm uh, kidding. I'm not kidding. Come on, it would be kind of nice. It would be so nice. It doesn't have to be a man. Yeah, anybody, whatever. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of different Rich lesbians. There's so many of them. (laughs) Mine, the rich lesbian community immediately. Maybe there should be an app for that. Okay. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you so much for chatting. Okay. Take care. Bye. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.